0: Hey, everyone. My name is Brahm and welcome to this week's episode of The Integration Conversation. The Integration Conversation, of course, is the podcast that covers the emerging psychedelics industry. We do company deep dives, interviews with psychedelic CEOs, and all sorts of other cool stuff like psychedelic live streams. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about something a little bit different. Like I said, oftentimes, we focus on doing in-depth analysis of individual companies or talking to representatives or CEOs from these companies. But I I had a different idea for this week, so here's what it is. Uh, over the last week or so, I've been having a lot of conversations with people that aren't really familiar with the idea of psychedelics. And I've been sort of explaining it to them and trying to convince them that it's a good idea to get involved in the space. And I've started to notice some patterns in these conversations. And it's almost like I could write a psychedelic investing frequently asked questions guide. And so in this video, in this podcast episode, what I'm going to try and do is sort of distill down the common components of all of these conversations I've been having with people that are not super intimately familiar with psychedelics or the psychedelic industry, and um, just put these things together to give sort of a broad overview of the psychedelic space and how I think about it. So here's some examples of some questions that are going to be answered in this episode. A big one is just, what exactly are we investing in when we talk about investing in psychedelics? Some people think, "Oh, is are we just talking about investing in another way to get high?" What exactly is it? What is the market that we're going after? And the next question that follows from that is, what's the potential of that market? Like how big could it really get? You know, how many multiples could I get on my money if I decide to get involved in this space? And then within this space, are there just one type of business? What are all the different like little sub-segments that are going to be required to have a fully functioning psychedelic industry? Is it just drug development? Or is it just clinics? Are there other things? Um, that, that's another thing that I commonly have to explain. Another thing we might talk about is why is now the right time to get involved in psychedelics? You know, it's in investing, it's not enough to just be right. You have to be there at the right time. If you're too early or too late, you oftentimes lose out even if you have the right idea. So So why is now a good time to be involved in this thing? And we're also going to address a a couple of other common misconceptions that I hear. One of them is, hey, Brahm, I love this idea of psychedelics, but we all know that these things are being decriminalized by, you know... Oregon and potentially California and other cities, isn't this decriminalization just going to ruin any profits from any corporations? Um, I'll tell you why I don't think that's the case. We can also talk about another common misconception, which is hey, this is interesting, but isn't this just cannabis 2.0? And most of these cannabis companies never really made any money. Um, Isn't this just like cannabis? And again, I I think the answer is no, and I'll I'll tell you why I think that. So that's sort of an overview some of the things that we might talk about today. Of course, we'll we'll surely touch on some other topics, but that's a broad overview. And we're going to get into those things in just a second, but I do want to uh, say a few things. Um, First. So, obviously, you're probably watching this on YouTube, but if you don't like watching long, in-depth YouTube videos, this is, of course, available as a podcast, an audio-only podcast, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other great podcast platforms out there. Also, you should follow me on Twitter at the Brom. Um, I post a lot of psychedelic-related media there. Um, Also, you should check out the live stream. I usually do live streams on Thursday or Friday where I interact with people. I try to just cover the interesting psychedelic news of the week, talk about topics that don't necessarily warrant an hour-long, in-depth video, and I also take questions from people. So If you have anything that you're trying to get answered about the psychedelic industry, you can just hop into that live stream, shoot me a question, and I will try to get it answered. Also, you know, I've been doing some interviews with psychedelic CEOs on this channel and I'm trying to do more interviews. So if you have any requests for interview guests for me, they don't have to be a CEO of a company, they don't even have to be involved in psychedelic capitalism necessarily. Necessarily, They could be a researcher, they could be an advocate. Um, Please let me know who you think I should have on the show and even better, if you happen to have a connection to that person and you could potentially help get them on the show, that would be greatly appreciated. And of course I'm willing to interview everyone but um you know I've had a lot of guys on my show and I would like to you know get a little bit of a better gender balance so if you know any women specifically that are involved in the psychedelic industry um that would be awesome so shoot me those guest recommendations guys um, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I noticed that only about half the people that watch the channel are subscribers. And if you like this content and you wanna be notified and when more of it comes out, you should definitely subscribe. And you should do the same thing if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you know, follow, subscribe, whatever they call it. Leave a review if you're using Apple Podcasts. That stuff really helps get attention. I think that just about covers all of the housekeeping. So I think maybe we should just get into this psychedelic overview, frequently asked questions. Style video that we're going to do here. So let's do it. The first question is, what exactly are we talking about when we say investing in psychedelics? Like, what's the industry? What is the problem that we're solving? I think that's not a lot—not clear to a lot of people. I had a conversation with a guy the other day, and for the first ten minutes of the conversation, I think he thought I was just talking about selling drugs to people at Burning Man, Um, and I had to sort of clear up that misconception. So. The, the industry at large that psychedelics are a part of, at least psychedelics at this point in time, it, you're really talking about the mental health industry. And why is mental health important? Why is mental health a good industry to get involved with? Well, I am a data guy, and I have some stats for you. So let me just look over here at my screen, and I'm going to rattle off some stats. So it's pretty easy to argue that we're in a mental health crisis, not just in the United States, but in most of the developed world. So here's some stats that are specific to the U.S., but I think the numbers are pretty c- close approximations of what you might find in Europe or Canada. So 17% of all American adults are taking some sort of psychiatric drug at any given time. And psychiatric drugs, of course, include antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, ADHD medications, um, and you know pretty much anything else that deals with you know, your brain, your, your psychology. 20% of people, so one in five of American adults are currently diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. So just walk around your office and you know one in five of your coworkers probably has a diagnosis from a doctor for some sort of mental issue, depression, anxiety, whatever. And if you think, well, hey, that's not me, I don't care. Well, guess what? The odds of this happening to you over your lifetime are pretty bad. It's actually about 50% chance. So flip a coin, if it lands heads, you are going to be diagnosed with some sort of mental illness at some point in your life. So this is something that affects a giant chunk of people. And let's talk about, you know, what what is the impact of this? Is Is it actually a problem? And the answer is yes. So there are real human costs and there are real economic costs. $20 billion spent on antidepressants, just antidepressants in the U.S. alone every year. Mental health overall in the United States, about $280 billion on all mental health services. And in terms of economic costs, it's estimated that mental illness costs the world economy almost a trillion dollars in lost productivity a year. And if you think about it, this makes total sense. If people are not feeling their best, if people are depressed, if people are anxious, they might have a hard time getting up and going into work. And even if they do show up to work, they're not necessarily focused. They're not performing at their best. And so these things have a real financial and economic cost. And so the question is, is like, how are we currently treating these things because you know just because a market is big doesn't mean it's necessarily a good one to get involved with if there's already current solutions for the problems that that market is facing then maybe it's not a good place to get involved so so let's look at how mental health is currently treated well mental health is generally treated with this existing class of psychiatric drugs SSRIs benzodiazepines that sort of thing and let let's look at what the numbers are around these drugs so oftentimes These things can be ineffective. Uh, A commonly quoted statistic that you'll see on the slide decks of a lot of these psychedelic companies is that one in three cases of depression are what is called treatment resistant. And what that means is that the patient has tried at least two existing treatments and hasn't found any relief. So think about that. One in three cases of depression, treatment resistant. And um, when patients go off of their antidepressant treatments, about a third of them end up becoming depressed again shortly thereafter. So it's like, these things only work for the amount of time you're taking them. And even when they do work, they oftentimes come with very unpleasant side effects. So for example, antidepressants are famously associated with weight gain and sexual dysfunction, especially in men, which is, you know, no one wants that. And if you look at anti-anxiety drugs like Xanax, which by the way, is the most commonly prescribed psychiatric drug in the United States last time I checked— these benzodiazepines like Xanax have a very high potential for abuse. You hear about people getting addicted to Xanax. You can even overdose on it. Um, and then when, it, when we look at drugs that are targeting substance use disorder like alcoholism and you know opioid addiction, a lot of these drugs like suboxone and methadone can become addictive themselves and people can get dependent on those. So they're sort of swapping out an addiction with another addiction, which admittedly is less harmful, but still not necessarily the ideal treatment. And if I really had to sum up what these treatments are like, I would sort of say that they're what you might call palliative instead of curative. And what that means is that they treat the symptoms rather than the underlying causes. And because of that, you generally have to keep taking these treatments for a long time, as long as the issue persists. Like you don't just take one dose of antidepressant and your depressant's gone. You basically have to stay on it until the depression, the depressive period in life is over. And um, you know, it would be much better if we could like go in there and fix the root cause rather than just sort of, you know, making the patient like be okay with how they're feeling. It would be one thing if these treatments were working, but the truth is, is that they're not. And the way that we can see that is by looking at the trends in mental health in the United States. And the trends are not good. They're all going in the wrong direction. So there's been a 10% increase in mental illness diagnosis over the last 10 years. There's been a 30% increase in the suicide rate over the last 20 years. And there's been a 100% increase. There's been a doubling of deaths of despair over the last 20 years. And if you're not familiar with deaths of despair, deaths of despair is sort of this catch-all term that the CDC uses to talk about deaths that occur as a result of poor life choices and poor life circumstance. So for example, um, drug overdoses, alcohol overdoses, um, diseases associated with excess alcohol consumption like Um, cirrhosis of the liver and suicides all fall into deaths of despair. And these deaths of despair have doubled over the last 20 years. So hopefully what I've you know sort of explained to you here is that this mental health industry that's spending $280 billion a year, it's that $280 billion is not necessarily being spent effectively. So it's like we have this big market that's spending a ton of money on stuff that is not working that well. And if you ask, well, then if it's not working that well, why are they spending the money on it? Well, it's because the problem is so bad that people are willing to try anything. And to me, from a business perspective, that's an amazing opportunity because, you know, oftentimes you see these huge markets and they're spending billions on things, but the things that they're spending the billions on are actually working well and solving the problems that people want them to solve. But here, these billions are being spent on something that is just not that effective but the problem is so bad that people are willing to just do anything they can that even has a chance of working. So if a new paradigm can come in, if a new type of treatment can come in and offer something better than what's there, you have to think that a big percentage of that $280 billion spent every year on mental health care in the United States will go to that new paradigm shift. And of course, that new paradigm shift, at least what I'm proposing it is, should is, is psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. There is a massive and growing body of evidence that suggests that psychedelic-assisted therapy is much more effective than traditional treatments at treating depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse disorder, and all sorts of other mental issues with fewer side effects than these traditional treatments. And um, this is not a video where I'm going to go in depth on the research. That's something maybe for another time. You can look at that yourself, but... um, The research is there and we're seeing psychedelics being used to treat things like depression and PTSD in just a couple of sessions. So rather than continuing to take your SSRI indefinitely, you take one or two large doses of psilocybin and your depression is gone for six to 12 months at a time. It's really a totally new paradigm shift. And so that's the market that you're going after, that $280 billion mental health market that is not currently being served In an optimal way. Okay, so now we understand sort of the broad market that psychedelics are attacking. But what types of businesses exist within that market? What types of businesses are going to need to exist in order for the psychedelic industry to, you know, fulfill its promise of potentially treating the one in five Americans that are currently diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue? Well. I have a whole list, and I'm going to walk through them one by one. So the first thing, and th- this is, this makes up the majority of the companies that you're seeing that are publicly traded now, is uh, clinical research, specifically clinical research on existing psychedelics. So everyone knows that molecules like psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ibogaine, we know that these things exist. But the research has to be done to validate their efficacy, and the research has to be done to prove to the governing bodies, like the FDA, that these are good treatments that are better than, you know, the SSRIs and the other substances that they're replacing. So you need companies that are doing clinical research on the existing molecules. And there are a lot of companies out there like that. But this, so I think, and this might surprise people, this actually only makes up a small percentage of the overall companies that are going to eventually make up the psychedelic industry. So another, the next one is drug companies that are researching new chemical entities. And what is a new chemical entity? Well, what I'm saying is a psychedelic that hasn't been invented yet. Psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, they're all great, but they have some drawbacks. They take a long time to work. You know, psilocybin lasts for from four to six hours. The hallucinations can be quite intense, um, and even after that four to six hours, you're not necessarily ready to like go back to work. You kind of need time to sit there and digest what just happened. So these are things that take a long time and are very intense. And I personally believe that, you know, 20 years from now, the most popular psychedelic will be something that no one today has even heard of. Um, And so There is going to be a big industry of companies that are researching new chemical entities that specifically new chemical entities that are psychedelic, but are shorter acting than something like psilocybin and maybe have, I'm not saying no hallucinogenic effect, but maybe less hallucinogenic effect and maybe a hallucinogenic effect that is more consistent across different subjects. I think that's a massive market and, um, you know, we we have yet to see any players make any real progress in that space, but I think there's reason to believe that that's going to be a huge component of the psychedelic industry, especially as we look at longer timeframes, like 10 or 20 years. Of course, from an investing perspective, doing drug research on a new chemical entity is one of the riskiest things that you can do, right? Like the probability of success is very low. And so you're going to see a lot of companies burn tons of cash in, in this endeavor, and they won't, you know, make it past phase one trials. So If you're going to get involved in psychedelic investing, you probably wanna have exposure to companies that are doing new chemical entity research, but I would certainly not want to have a portfolio made up entirely of companies that are doing new chemical entity research. Of course, the next thing that's gonna need to happen is that once these drugs are approved by the FDA, they're going to need to be manufactured and tested. And I think this is one that's really often overlooked, Um, but the truth is, is that a lot of these psychedelic drugs they've they've been around for a long time but they've been illegal for most of that time and so most of the manufacturing methods are manufacturing methods that people have sort of figured out that they're able to do you know in their bathtub in some underground drug lab um i don't know that we've necessarily figured out how to manufacture these drugs at scale in compliance with all of the regulations that the FDA and other countries' governing bodies will require. So there's probably going to need to be some innovation in manufacturing and testing these substances. And I think that there's a lot of potential IP that can be developed around that. So the next question is, how are you going to deliver these drugs to patients? Well, I can promise you one thing. It is not going to be the case that you will walk into a Walgreens and they will hand you a prescription bottle full of psilocybin or LSD most likely the FDA is going to require these substances to be done in some sort of controlled clinical setting under the supervision of some sort of licensed professional. And so this is why you're seeing this boom in psychedelic clinics. You're seeing them everywhere. Um, and they're, they're popping up currently as ketamine clinics because ketamine is sort of the one legal quasi-psychedelic molecule out there. Um, and of course, the smart ones have plans to convert to psychedelic clinics as these treatments become legally available. One of the very interesting things that I've learned from both Ronan Levy and Doug Drysdale when I interviewed them is they both sort of commented on how there is a severe lack of clinical infrastructure. Doug Drysdale specifically, I think he said something along the lines of, we barely even have enough clinical infrastructure and trained therapists to do our studies, much less deliver these drugs to the millions of people that are going to need them once the FDA approves them. And so, I think that the clinical infrastructure cannot be understated. I know there are a lot of people that think that these clinics won't make any money, that they're going to be overbuilt, but I actually think that there's going to be more demand for these clinics than most people realize. And the last category that it's important to talk about are the psychedelic accessories or the picks and shovels. And if you're not familiar with the term picks and shovels, what it it comes from this old saying that's like the only people that made money in the gold rush are the people that sold the picks and the shovels to the miners. So we're talking about companies that are not necessarily delivering the drugs or creating the drugs, but creating accessories that are used by those groups of people. So perhaps... um, some sort of technology that helps identify whether or not a new chemical will hit the right parts of the brain to create a psychedelic effect. It could be something like a training program for therapists to get them certified into the delivery of psychedelic medicines. It could also be something like a music system that creates the optimal playlist for a psychedelic trip session, you know, personalized to, you know, the individual patient based off of their Spotify preferences or something. You know, music could make or break the psychedelic experience. And so, you've got to think that you know at some point these big networks of clinics are going to need to figure out how to get the right music in there and someone's going to make a ton of money doing that. So these are all these weird little interesting ideas. Oh, another example of this picks and shovel might be an alternative delivery system for an existing psychedelic. So for example, instead of you know eating the mushroom or taking a pill, maybe someone creates inhalable psilocybin or maybe transdermal psilocybin with a patch. These are all sort of like psychedelic adjacent businesses that I think have huge potential. So that's sort of a compilation of all the different types of sub-businesses that might exist within the psychedelic sector. But let's say you've identified a couple of businesses that look interesting. How do you evaluate them and decide whether or not they're good investments? Well, there are a couple of criteria that I've been thinking of lately. And the first one, this should be pretty obvious, is the team. And the, I think the team is especially important when you're talking about a company that is doing some sort of research on like new chemical entities or something. You wanna have a team that is really experienced in what they're trying to do. And again, like I said, especially important for the drug development companies, maybe less so for a technology company because you know, those are more general skills. But if you're looking at a company that's doing drug research on new chemical entities, you want a team that is made up of people that have prior pharmaceutical and biotech experience. All right. So the team is one thing. You also want to look at, you know, real protectable IP around psychedelics. So for example, if you're looking at a business whose business plan is to grow mushrooms in a warehouse and they're not developing any unique farming methods or anything, you know, that may not necessarily be a business that you want to be involved in because there's, there's nothing unique about that. You're churning out a commodity product and you don't really have any competitive edge. So you want to look for things that have real unique IP that can either be patent protected or is protected by some sort of like network effect or some sort of like brand equity or something. And um, I think it's also important to look for companies that have clear paths to revenue or some sort of exit. Um, You know, if you're looking at one of these small biotech companies that is doing new chemical entity research, you know, revenue is 10, 20 years away because it takes so long to get a new chemical entity turned into a drug. So you wanna look for a company that maybe um, might be an attractive acquisition target for a larger pharmaceutical player. And if you're looking for a, um, at, at some sort of smaller psychedelic accessory, you know, that is you know, more revenue-based and less acquisition-based, you wanna make sure that it actually has the potential to generate real revenue. So, you know, very simple things that I think are often overlooked. But what should you avoid? Well, one of the big ones is I think you want to avoid any businesses that have a model that might be threatened by psychedelic decriminalization or legalization. And we're going to talk about that more because I'm going to talk about why I don't think decriminalization threatens most business models. But there are certainly some business models that it does threaten. I think you also want to avoid any companies who claim that their edge is a patent that covers some fundamental aspect of psychedelic therapy. So for example, if you have a company out there and their only edge or their only thing that they're talking about is how they have a unique patent on something like the therapist holding the patient's hand or a certain color of paint for the walls or some type of soft furniture to trip on, I don't think that those patents are going to hold up in court. And so you shouldn't really invest in companies that have like low-quality sort of patent trolling as their primary you know, edge that they're advertising. Another big thing that I'm seeing in the market lately is this new crop of very low-quality drug research companies whose whole pitch is psilocybin for X, where X is some ailment that has no existing body of research or even anecdotes to suggest that psilocybin would be useful to treat it. Um, these are companies that are clearly riding the hype train. Oftentimes you see this company, um, companies like this will also have very low quality teams. And I think you just want to avoid companies that are like this. And um, this is more of a personal preference, but I think you want to avoid any companies that are pushing psychedelics in like a pseudo-spiritual woo-woo manner um you know maybe maybe that's a a wrong way to think about things because that stuff does reach a lot of people but ultimately i think that um the future of psychedelics is like evidence based not tied up in you know new age spiritual hippy dippy type stuff that stuff can stay with the decriminalization crowd but in terms of you know money-making businesses i think it's best that um it's best to stay away from that sort of stuff so the next big question why now, why is now the right time to get involved in psychedelics? Like I said in the intro, in investing, you have to be right and you also have to be on time. You don't wanna to be too early or too late. Um, so there are a couple of things that I think point to this being the right time for psychedelics. One, well, let me just take a step back here. If you had asked me just like five years ago if I was convinced that psychedelics would become a part of mainstream medicine, I probably would have said no or I'm not sure. But there's we're at this point in time now where I'm like, sure that it's going to happen, and I'm going to tell you why. There have been recent regulatory and legislative changes that um, really have kind of shut the door behind us. Like, we can't go back to this era now where it's not clear whether psychedelics are going to be accepted. So many of you already know this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. So we've seen um, MDMA for post-traumatic stress get FDA breakthrough therapy designation, We've seen psilocybin for two different types of depression get um, FDA breakthrough therapy disorder. So we're seeing the FDA being willing to play ball with companies that are pursuing psychedelic treatment protocols for mainstream diseases. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they're going to get approved, but it's very likely that they will be approved. Um, We also see changes on the the, uh, legislative front. So for example, we saw Oregon in 2020 pass Measure 109, which is a very interesting ballot measure because it basically said we're going to go around the FDA we don't care what the FDA says we're going to let therapists use psilocybin in their practice but here's the super interesting thing so that really shows you why we're not too early but why are we not too late is it too late and that's sort of the, that's the other question well because of how long things to take to play out it's it's not too late. So even though we've seen these regulatory changes and these legislative changes, they haven't been implemented yet. So that MDMA for PTSD isn't expected to get approved until 2023. And the way that Oregon's Measure 109 was written was that, yes, the law was passed, but it doesn't actually go into effect until, I think, uh, so- something like 18 to 24 months after it was signed. So we still have some time before therapists are actually allowed to start using this stuff. So we're in this weird time where like, we know what the future holds. We know that psychedelics are going to become a part of mainstream medicine, but it hasn't happened yet. And I don't know, if you're like new to investing, maybe you don't realize how interesting this is. But in investing, it's like so rare to get a glimpse of the future. Usually by the time you understand what's happening around you, it's too late to act. Um, And psychedelics, it really feels like one of those very rare times where you actually have an opportunity to get on board with a major paradigm shift before you know the train has left the station, so to speak. So I think that right now and you know the next six months are kind of the perfect time to get involved in investing or working in this space. Another question I get all the time is, isn't this just like cannabis 2.0? Um, and the answer, of course, is no. There are some big differences between psychedelics and cannabis, both from the pharmaceutical side and also the drug side. So let, let's walk through both of those. On the pharmaceutical side, cannabis and psychedelic molecules are very different. Cannabis is a very complicated substance. Um, there are multiple chemicals within cannabis that create the cannabis high when smoked. It's the, the THC, the CBD. There are, some, there are a lot of different terpenes in there, and all of them together create this effect that gives you like the signature cannabis high. And um, as far as I understand it, attempts to create like synthetic cannabis products have been you know, kind of so-so. There aren't, u- using synthetic cannabis isn't a super popular thing, and that's probably for a reason. So I think that uh, when you compare that with psychedelics, what you see on the other hand is that psychedelic molecules are very simple. And even when you look at something like magic mushrooms, it's pretty well known that the psilocybin is really it. Like there's nothing else in the, in the mushroom that interacts with the psilocybin to create the psilocybin high. Even Albert Hoffman, the guy that created LSD, many people don't know this, but after he uh, created LSD, a couple years later, he learned he figured out how to synthesize psilocybin, and he claims that even according to his own personal test, that there's literally no difference between the synthetic psilocybin and the psilocybin that you get out of the mushroom. So the point is, is that it's much easier to work on psychedelics pharmaceutically than it is to work on cannabis. And if you like dig deep down the psychedelic rabbit hole, you'll find that there are books like Picall, written by um, Shulgin, where he describes, you know, recipes for over 200 different psychedelic chemicals that all work in very interesting ways. And so that's why I think that the potential for these new chemical entities that are still psychedelic and yet maybe have a more manageable trip, a shorter trip, um, something that, you know, the more mainstream society might be willing to get involved with are... are I, that's why I think there's so much opportunity there because it is actually possible to make pharmaceutical progress in psychedelics, whereas we haven't really seen that the same type of thing happen in cannabis. So on the pharmaceutical side, that that's one thing. Another thing to understand is just that cannabis and psychedelics are very different drugs to experience. I mean, cannabis is relatively well-tolerated. It's very easy to do. You smoke it and it wears off in 45 minutes and you're back to normal. You don't need a guide you don't need any sort of special preparation. And in order to get the medical effects of cannabis, which are generally thought of as like, you know, pain killing, re- relaxation, you don't need much else than the cannabis, right? It's, it's like, it happens whether you want it to, to or not. You smoke the weed and the pain goes away. Um, but psychedelics, if you actually want to use psychedelics as a tool for change, you're talking about something very different than just smoking a joint. You're talking about, a pre-psychedelic experience therapy session where you work out with your therapist what your issues are and what you want to change. Then you're talking about the psychedelic experience, which lasts, you know, a whole day, basically. And then you're talking about the, um, you know, that, that post-session integration therapy where you work with the therapist to figure out how to, address the things that you learned and were confronted with in the psychedelic experience and you try to figure out how to take advantage of that temporary neuroplasticity induced by the psilocybin to make new healthier habits stick. So it's it's like a much more complicated process than cannabis. Um, And so I, I think that because of that, you're going to need all this clinical infrastructure and other businesses built up around the psychedelic distribution and delivery chain that you just don't need in cannabis. So there's a lot more opportunities for like, you know, accessories businesses, the picks and shovels in psychedelics than there is in cannabis. And finally, the last thing I want to address is this idea that because psychedelics are becoming decriminalized, we don't really need any industry around them and that this decriminalization is just going to destroy profits. And so it's not really worth paying attention to psychedelics because they're just going to be decriminalized. Okay, so let's address this. First of all, I am totally in favor of decriminalization and I think anyone who's opposed to decriminalization is an asshole. So let me just get that out of the way. I want decriminalization to happen. I'm very happy to live in a state where decriminalization is working its way through the legislation. Um, But decriminalization is not enough. Uh, Let me explain why, I got a couple different reasons. So first of all, you have to understand what decriminalization is. It is a situation in which generally, the way that it's written is that prosecuting cases of possession of, you know, whatever substance is now like the lowest priority. So all that means is that if you get, you know, pulled over with some mushrooms or whatever, you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to get prosecuted for that. That doesn't mean that it's legal to sell large quantities of this or manufacture large quantities of this stuff. So it doesn't mean that you'll be able to walk into a store and buy it legally. It means that you will still, generally speaking, have to go to some type of you know, drug dealer or gray market situation. It's great that it's moved from the black market to the gray market, but the reality is that it's still the gray market. And, you know, the gray market is um, a place that a lot of people are comfortable with. It's something that I would be fine approaching. But to get these things into the hands of, you know, mainstream America, the type of people that read Good Housekeeping, for example, which did a profile on psychedelics somewhat surprisingly last week, you're, those people are not going to go to the gray market. They want to go to a store or a pharmacy to get this stuff. So that's one thing. Another thing to understand is that just because something's decriminalized doesn't mean that the federal government, for example, or national corporations that require drug testing are going to allow their people to use psilocybin or you know, LSD or whatever. So one way to think about this, to put this in terms of something that's actually happening now, is in California, where I live, cannabis is recreationally legal. I can go into a store and buy it. However, that doesn't mean that the federal government allows their employees to smoke cannabis. So for example, if, if I was in the military and I was stationed at the naval base in San Diego, sure, I'm living in California where it's legal, but if I smoke a joint and I piss test positive for marijuana, I'm getting kicked out. So decriminalization, and even in this case, recreationally legalizing it, doesn't necessarily help me if I'm in one of those jobs. And by the way, there are a lot of jobs besides the military that do pretty rigorous drug testing. For example, truck driver, which is one of the, I believe it's like the most common job for males in America is like truck driver. Those jobs dr- drug test pretty you know aggressively from what I understand. And, um, decriminalization isn't going to help a truck driver or a military person or someone who works for, you know, any of these employees that re- employers that requires drug testing. In order for these people to be able to get access to, you know, psychedelic therapy, it is going to need to be FDA approved, basically. Because until it's FDA approved, it's not going to be removed from the controlled substances list or descheduled. And, you know, people will still be risking their livelihoods if they seek out these sorts of treatments. So you got to think that there's going to be a whole... All of those people are not going to be going to the gray market decrim side. They're going to be going to the medical side. Um, Another interesting thing about decriminalization is that if decriminalization does happen, the demand for psychedelic accessories, those picks and shovels, actually probably increases. So let's say that decriminalization happens. You could theoretically have a clinic, and maybe it doesn't say on the door that it's a psychedelic clinic. Maybe it does, but it's it's a place that's designed to have trips and you're allowed to rent it out for that purpose. Now, that's kind of an interesting situation because now you have a business that is facilitating something that is decriminalized gray market, but the business itself is like a, you know, a white market business. So, I think that these psychedelic accessories, these picks and shovels companies that we're talking about actually make more money as decriminalization increases in the country. And of course, you still might want a trip guide, you know, you because you don't want to do this alone. You might you might want a therapist that's trained in the psychedelic healing arts. And of course, we've only been talking about macro dosing so far, these high therapeutic doses. We haven't even touched on microdosing. And microdosing, I think, is very different because with microdosing, you don't really, the precision measurements matter a lot more, right? If you, if you just go a little bit too high on your microdose, now all of a sudden you're actually having a psychedelic experience when you're trying to drive to work. So, not good. So, I think microdosing. Decriminalization doesn't really help the microdose crowd because decrim doesn't mean that you're allowed to open a high-grade um, precision manufacturing facility to create like precision-dosed microdose tablets. That sort of thing is only going to be legal under you know recreational legalization or medicalization. So I think that um, you know decriminalization certainly doesn't hurt businesses that are targeting microdosing either. So I, I could kind of go on and on, but. I think there are many counter arguments to this idea that decriminalization is just going to hurt profits. And that's why I think that companies that are taking a stand against decriminalization are ultimately just being short-sighted and not thinking this through, or maybe they know that their specific business model is going to be threatened by decriminalization and don't want any part of it. Okay, so I think that just about covers it. I know this was a little bit shorter than a lot of the episodes I do, but I hope it was informative. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare this episode. It, a lot of this was just kind of like off the top of my head based off of a rough outline. So I'm sorry if this seemed a little scatterbrained. Let me know what I missed. Is there something else that should always be brought up when you're explaining psychedelic investing to someone who's not necessarily familiar with it? Is there anything I said that you think I'm wrong about, something you disagree with? Let me know in the comments. I, I love trying to you know get to the bottom of these things. And I um, you know, besides that, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the Integration Conversation. Again, please like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter at the Real Braum. Check us out on Instagram at um, the Integration Co. is the screen name. And like I said in the beginning, let me know if you have any guest requests, and I will do my best to make those happen.